Hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Jindal Digest for Competition and Innovation Laws. Today's podcast is a part of a larger project analyzing the impact of the intermediary guidelines 2021 on the various stakeholders. Today Vasudev Devdasan joins us to discuss the impact of the 2021 guidelines on the citizens. Vasudev is an alum of JGU research fellow and a research fellow with National Law University Delhi and has done some extremely interesting work on the impact of the guidelines on privacy of the citizens. Hi Vasu, we loved your work on the guidelines on the Indian Constitutional Law and Philosophy blog. Thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us. Happy to be here. Um we can start by asking you Aditya, you can start by asking questions. Certainly. So um in this regard I thought we could just start off by understanding the relevance of the guidelines so that all of our viewers and listeners are on the same page as us as we go through this podcast so that being said i think the first question that i think is in everyone's mind at this point is why should we be concerned with these intermediary guidelines and how do they impact let's say a, a normal day to day citizen of india right um so i would say that traditionally the way legal scholars have understood privacy is that it has two very very key roles um in terms of furthering individual autonomy and allowing us to associate privately so what that what does that really mean in um everyday practice when we talk about individual autonomy there are a host of things that you and i as individuals are very comfortable talking about privately but may not be comfortable talking about publicly right this may be for a variety of reasons it could be because it's merely socially stigmatized or it could be because say it's unconstitutionally prohibited so for example if you take the example of um, homosexuality until recently it was constitutionally uh, prohibited right in terms of there was an actual penal law against it it also continues to be socially stigmatized in various corners of uh, social discourse in india now if an individual wants to actualize their autonomy in terms of understanding how they can continue to be a autonomous individual within the indian political community then they have to have a space to do that right and being able to communicate privately fundamentally structures that space if i cannot communicate privately i cannot express myself about issues that may be socially stigmatized the second really important value that communicating privately has i think we should all be concerned about is um the ability of individuals to associate privately right so i may want to talk to somebody about something that's very close to my heart that furthers my own individual autonomy i may also wish to associate with other individuals privately away from the public eye or away from the state right so one classic example we have is um the political opposition right if i am in opposition to the government i may very well want to communicate privately away from the government's eyes um the most i'll give you a very recent example when there was the whole kerfuffle about um sachin pilot's um departure from the rajasthan legislative assembly right there was a question as to whether or not the rajasthan government was tapping the phones of sachin pilot and his rogue enemies now this is within the same political party within the rajasthan government you have a question of tapping political um the tapping the phones of political operators right so you can see that um being able to associate privately is essential to make sure that the government does not have too much power over uh, the citizens 
right? Um, this could also apply to a range of organizations that may be either socially stigmatized or outlawed, right? For example, in America, if you look at the history of um, the NAACP, right? In India, you have a whole bunch of organizations that are restricted under national security legislation, but do contribute to political discourse on many levels, right? And they, they have a very strong interest in communicating privately. So these are the sort of two key reasons why everybody really should be concerned is that it um, allows individuals to pursue their individual autonomy and it allows individuals to associate privately. So I think those would be my answers. Thank you. I think that's quite interesting the way you brought up aspects of, you know, controlling the state hegemony in that sense. And apart from that, even just talking about, let's say, stigmatization and helping people communicate with each other on shared grounds. And, you know, at this point, I was just wondering if there are any specific implications you can see in terms of the right to self-determination or one's fundamental rights as well in that regard. Right. So I think in terms of um, fundamental rights, obviously the autonomy angle is in, is automatically impacted, right? Because, um, I mean, the way, especially the way the Supreme Court has read um, fundamental rights, which is to sort of link articles 14, 19, and 21, right? And you're talking not just about um, limiting the state power over citizens, but you're talking about their ability to lead meaningful lives within the Indian political community, right? And I think, um, and this, this sort of, can easily be expanded into various Supreme Court decisions, talking about various facets of what a meaningful life is, right? You have the whole range of um, uh, decisions under right to life under 21, whether we're talking about clean air, environment, housing, or you're talking about um, the autonomy to determine one's gender, right? So there's a whole range of, uh, range of uh, literature on this. And I think um, when you talk about fundamental rights, that's directly what's, what it's impacting, right? If you take away an individual's ability to communicate privately, you're directly hampering their ability to meaningfully live their lives in on their terms, right? And ultimately, that's what a democracy is about, right? When we talk about self-determination, I mean, again, I think that relates more to the second part that I was talking about, which is the ability to associate privately, right? Well, I mean, we don't need to go to the level of secession, right? If you want to have any group of individuals that feel that they have a right, whether they're arguing for reservations within a particular community or a state, right? Whether they're arguing for statehood within the Indian federal structure, right? They have the ability to, or they have the desire to communicate privately away from government surveillance, right? And I think those are sort of two uh, key ways in which being able to trace individuals um, or the ability to, oh, sorry, the power of the state to hamper private communications would definitely result in, in impacting fundamental rights and the right to self-determination. I think that's really helpful and also sort of situating the importance of private communication, even within the scope of our rights as well as Indian citizens. But in that regard, one question that I feel anyone who might be thinking on these lines might have to deal with, or rather the argument that they'd have to deal with is again, the nothing to hide argument, one that we've heard on privacy discourses for time immemorial for that matter. And I was just wondering, um, how would you address such an argument? What would you suggest as a way to go about these arguments? Right. Um, so there's many, many issues with the I have nothing to hide argument. Um, I would say let's just take two very practical issues, right? Um, one practical issue with taking that position 
right, is that if I say I have nothing to hide and I'm just sending cat videos to my friends, right, what you're allowing is um, the norm to become state surveillance, right? You're making it a norm for the state to be able to surveil the communications of private individuals and privacy now becomes the exception, right? Now, what happens is that, say in five years, in 10 years, at any point in the future, if you disagree with the state on any point, right, it's already too late because now surveillance is the norm. So you've gone from having nothing to hide to really having nowhere to hide, right? So you can only really take that position um, that I have nothing to hide if you understand or if you believe that you will never at any point in your life disagree with the state on anything, right? Because as soon as you disagree with that state and you want to voice your opposition to that state, then you do need a place, or you need somewhere to hide, right? So I think that's one really important point. The second is that it's not really about the individual, right? It's also about maintaining the balance between individuals as a collective. And when I say individuals as a collective, I'm talking about citizens and the state, right? And um, there's a really interesting quote yesterday. I read about the, the Chinese rocket that was falling, right? The quote I think was, it was, I'm uh, forgetting who said it, but what they said is the risk to the individual is really minuscule, right? But the risk to all individuals is not, right? So I think that really goes to the heart of maintaining that balance um, between citizens and the state, because at some point somebody is going to be affected. So we want to really maintain the balance of powers between the citizens and the state. And I think our current sort of national health crisis is an example of what happens when we don't have good, strong institutions with um, vertical and horizontal transparency, accountability, and multiple layers of sort of scrutiny, right? And those are all sort of fundamental to maintaining the balance between the citizens and the state. And I think privacy is another aspect of maintaining that balance. So I would say that you don't need to only worry about yourself. You need to worry about that larger balance. I think that's actually brilliant the way you said nowhere to hide because that's something that I mean I wouldn't have thought of in, in another sense randomly and it also stems to a larger question of not knowing what exactly you want to hide especially considering in the times now what what you would consider something you need to hide changes with the context and so I think the aspect of nowhere to hide makes a large difference because even though you might not have something to hide right now it changes with context and I think that being said we could have given a, we have given a slight context to what we're going to be going into and I think Arya can get into the traceability requirements aspect now. Right so I wanted to talk to you about the traceability requirements under the intermediary guidelines 2021 and uh, the first question that comes to our mind and like a very preliminary question that I would like to take up is can we trace first originators on end-to-end -end encrypted platforms also under these guidelines? Right, um, so I think um, there's sort of two, two limbs of this question, right? One is can the government do it right now, right? If you're worried about your telegram and your signal and your WhatsApp communications, right? And the answer is no, right? It's not happening right now. Um, the legal question, the academic question is, is it possible on an end-to-end -end right? Um, and that's what the guidelines are sort of seeking to happen. Uh, and the question then is, can it happen on an end-to-end? -end? Um, the simple answer to that also is no, because the very definition of um, unrecoverable end-to-end -end encryption is that it cannot be read by a third party without the user's decryption key, 
right? That's the way yeah. unrecoverable and when yeah. encryption is understood, right? So, and I don't want to get into how the government thinks it's going to do this, um, very simply because one, I'm not an encryption expert, right? Two, the government itself doesn't seem to have a good grasp of how exactly it's going to do it, right? There've been multiple position papers put before courts, um, comments made by um, bureaucrats, right? So the government itself doesn't seem to have a good handle on it. And I think it's a bit unfair to prejudge the government's position before it actually um, sort of puts out what how it intends to operationalize it, if it can operationalize it, right? And the third reason I think that um, how exactly end-to-end, -end I mean, how exactly traceability can be enabled on an end-to-end -end encryption platform is a little bit of a red herring, is that I think the rules um, are flawed even if the government can enable traceability on an end-to-end -end platform, right? Because I don't think that first originators are the people we should be going after, right? Because there are just simply too many loopholes with that definition, right? And it's definitely yeah. not the least restrictive measure under, say, Puttiswami and, and all our other Supreme Court judgments yeah. and proportionality. Right. So um, let's contextualize it a little. So we already have the IT decryption rules, right? And I, I just wanted to know how has the compliance requirement shifted between the IT de decryption rules and the 2020 guidelines? Um, and also, do the guidelines apply to platforms that are end-to-end -end encrypted and given the best efforts obligation under the decryption rules? Right. So the IT decryption rules are uh, were passed some time ago. And like you correctly pointed out, they clearly say that um, decryption orders are limited to instances where either the intermediary itself is doing the encryption or the intermediary possesses the decryption key, right? Now, the new intermediary guidelines 2021 state that the decryption order will be as per um, the decryption rules, right? Now, based on a simple reading of that, it would stand to reason that a decryption order under the 2021 guidelines cannot order something that the decryption rules themselves do not contemplate, right? Um, that's, I mean, if we're saying it's as per the decryption rules, then it stands to reason that it would conform to the legal safeguards found in the decryption rules, right? So in that sense, I would say that um, the technical assistance requirements under the 2021 guidelines and the decryption rules would not uh, mandate decryption in that sense on an end-to-end -end encrypted platform um, because the intermediary does not possess the decryption key. However, I would note that this is something that's being actively contested in court, right? So there have been numerous court hearings on this and the position the government has taken is that even if it requires platforms to modify their functionality, it stops short of saying even if it requires the platforms to break end-to-end -end encryption, but even if it requires platforms to modify their functionality, they would have to comply with this technical assistance requirement to decrypt, right? So, uh, and the, the 2021 guidelines don't really provide too much clarity on this. So this is something that we may see actively litigated in the future. Um, and it's something that courts may pronounce on as to the exact contours of um, the intermediary's obligations to decrypt. Right. Um, so how how can we so my question is now with respect to proportionality that was set a uh, test of proportionality set out in the Puttaswami judgment and uh, do the guidelines especially in the context of the decryption rules and end-to-end -end encryption do they do they meet the test of proportionality um, 
do they fulfill it right right so the the real strength of the proportionality test lies in the fact that it's a conjunctive test right so there's four limbs that have to be satisfied and if any one of the four mm. limbs fall right the law is unconstitutional mm. right very very briefly the obviously we know the four limbs are that of legitimate aim right that of suitability or uh, advancing the legitimate aim mm. right then we have the least restrictive measure and then we have the um, whether or not there's a disproportionate impact mm. on rights right now i'm saying that um, the, the legitimate aim let's put that aside for the moment because it's they've said it's um, child sex abuse material and mm. uh, sexually explicit content so let's give them the legitimate aim but let's just look at 2 and 3 right um, does the traceability requirement on a platform which has 5 million um, users actually advance your legitimate aim and i think the reason it doesn't is because there are simply too many ways to defeat it right um so the traceability requirement says that you must identify the first originator and the first originator is somebody who posted the content on a particular platform for the first time right now automatically there's so many loopholes because for example you may have created the content you may have facilitated it on a telegram group right you sent it to me i posted it on whatsapp right um now i'm the first originator but i'm not the creator right the rules the traceability rules themselves admit that the first originator is not the creator because they say that content sent from overseas that comes to india right the first originator will be deemed to be the person who receives it in india so they automatically not the person who's created this content so you're not talking about creators right now the question is that are you talking about somebody who's um, a key disseminator of the content right again your definition of first originator doesn't help you there right because if i send you content and then you post it on a on say five different whatsapp groups with several hundred users you are the key facilitator of that content right so now why should the government have an investigative interest in finding me as a first originator right then you go on to look at the ways in which it can be abused right you could um, use a virtual private network or you could use a virtual sim card right so there are so many ways in which can, it can be used and the chances are that when a law is can be manipulated people who have the least amount of digital literacy will be the ones who suffer at the end of the day right so your first originators are likely to be a bunch of people who have either been hoodwinked or manipulated into being first originators and after that once once the content leaves their phones right or their devices it's viral on the internet it's viral amongst the indian political community but now you want to trace these first originators right so the law doesn't really advance the legitimate aim in a suitable manner right because there are so many ways in which it can be defeated um second is is it the least restrictive measure under the proportionality test now um, i think it's what's important to understand when we say least restrictive measure is that least restrictive measure amongst effective alternates right that's the real standard so let's first look at what the government already gets from intermediaries right um, if you look at the submissions before the madras high court whatsapp google they openly admit to saying that we already provide basic subscriber information under the code of criminal procedure right so they provide um, device information they provide last logon and logon times they provide ip information ip addresses sorry they provide email addresses associated with your whatsapp account or with your telegram account right so they are already providing all this information right now if you are saying that the traceability requirement 
is more invasive of privacy, right? Then under the proportionality standard of least restrictive measure amongst effective alternatives, if you're going to invade human rights more, you have to say that, okay, my new more invasive technique gives me something that these older, lesser restrictive techniques don't give me, right? Because I'm saying that these lesser restrictive techniques are not equally effective alternatives, right? And I think that if you couple this, right, if you say all of these are the ways in which the first originator rule can be manipulated, right? And then you say that um, the IP address isn't enough, right? You have you start to see the cracks in the government's arguments, right? Because arguably, right, finding the IP address and device information of a particular individual who you believe is a key disseminator of content, right? Um, and you will find out who a key disseminator of content is through ordinary investigation, right? Um, then, then why do you really need this traceability requirement to find first originators, right? And it's not it's not rocket science, right? If you look at various news agencies over the world, right, you will see that they regularly infiltrate large groups or large um, uh, networks of disinformation, right? You'll see that law enforcement regularly manages to tackle um, uh, key key facilitators of, say, sexually explicit or child sex abuse material, right? So this is not something that's not happening, right? So the question is, why does the government really need this magic bullet of tracing first originators? And when we understand that the magic bullet isn't really a magic bullet, right? It can be spoofed in a million different ways. Then I would say that simply you don't satisfy the second and third limbs of the proportionality requirement. Um, so I just had a follow up question in this regard, um, apart from the aspect that you clearly brought up about, you know, the abuses that are possible and other hoodwinking that could be possible. I just wanted to get back to the point about the first originator. And um, I think from what you stated that it had to be a person in India, and not necessarily an Indian citizen. And that was something I found interesting because does this mean it's going to have global impact if suppose WhatsApp or any platform is asked to change specific features for India specifically, but it's not limited to Indian citizens. Does it have a global impact as well? Yeah, so I mean, I think that one thing to recognize is that even the government right now at this stage hasn't clearly stated how they're going to find or distinguish between users in India and users overseas, right? Excuse me. If I have a plus nine one number and I travel overseas and I receive content there, am I a user in India, right? Um, if I have a plus four four number, but I'm in India, am I a user in India, right? Are you going to use GPS and location services to track, right? So there's a lot of um, lot of ambiguity as to how this user in India and user outside India is is going to actually be operationalized. I think the larger worry would be, and I think you correctly pointed out, that are we going to see a schism between um, the Indian internet and um, the the sort of global internet as we understand it? And I think there's a risk there if you have a situation where in where intermediaries operating in India, right, are required to uh, say modify their functionality. Right, whether it's end-to-end -end encryption or anything else, in a manner that at some level breaks the interoperability between Indian users and overseas users. So if WhatsApp has to in some way silo Indian users because say they are no longer end-to-end -end encrypted, then you could that could be the first step 
to sort of seeing India's internet sort of break away from, from a global internet. And that's something that where we should definitely be very worried about. I think recently somebody wrote about how that's sort of the first step towards a Chinese internet model. But I think we're, we're a while away from that currently. I think that that's quite actually uh, like it, it's quite in line with what I was thinking as well, because in one sense you have seen how in recent time, let's take Spotify, for example, they do have a different feature in India and abroad, but with apps like WhatsApp, which have privacy implications, it's sort of interesting to ponder about whether, you know, when you're chatting with someone abroad and you don't have internet encryption on your side, what the implications are in that regard. And even looking at it from another regard that even if we do assume that a platform like like say the play store has a specific app which is meant for india a, a version of whatsapp the first originator definition would fail because a person who's coming from abroad in india would not fit within definition if they had a different app or if someone downloaded it using a vpn so personally i was just thinking on those lines there are multiple global impacts as well as fall like you know loopholes within the law itself when it comes to actually trying to enforce such laws Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. And that goes directly to that requirement that whatever measure you have, if it's going to impact fundamental rights, you have to be able to prove that it does help your legitimacy. Right? And when you have a law that's filled with loopholes, the efficacy of that is, is really hard to prove. Right. So, uh, so what, like, what would you suggest? What could be a least what could be the least intrusive measure according to you in this such a scenario? What could, how could you amend the definition of first originator as suggested in the uh, guidelines? I mean, I don't think that, uh, I, I, I don't think that the logic of a first originator is a very, very good logic to begin with, right? And I don't think um, it needs to be, it can be sort of tweaked um, to then say that, okay, we're going to catch the right guys. Right. Um, the way that the way that social media networks work is that you have various sort of gateways, you have various decentralized nodes through which this content passes. Right. And I'm not saying that the government has no interest in regulating this content. Of course it does. Right. But whatever measure you you potentially use, right, at some level you have to be able to show that you are targeting a very narrow sliver of speech that is that is constitutionally permitted to, to restrict, right? And you have to show that um, your actual implementation of it, right? That I'm able to track the actual people who are facilitating the speech, right? I think that's what you really want to curb, right? And there are various ways of going about it. You can go about it from a platform uh, regulation method where you say that, for example, intermediaries must de-rank certain kinds of content, right? Intermediaries already do that, but once content is flagged, you sort of de-rank it and you slow its spread, right? But I think the, the misnomer of going after specific individuals is sort of trying to transpose the way individuals interact in the real world with how individuals interact over social media networks. And I think that's a bit of a flawed model because there isn't one guy sitting in his basement sending out this content, right? So I think that's, that's the problem with the first originator model, really. Right. Right, that makes sense. Also, um, with respect to uh, the emphasis that judicial and legislative efforts have like made to focus on preventing child sexual abuse and pornography, how how would you balance the executive powers given under these guidelines against these crime control objectives? 
Right. Um, so I think that there's no doubt that, um, say, the, the, that's a case where the state has a legitimate aim. Well, we can debate about um, how much, say, technical and political and financial capital a government wants to expend on that, right? On, say, sexually explicit material or restricting pornography in India. But really, that's up to the government, right? Um, they have that amount of leeway. If you look at the guidelines that have been laid down, and several of these guidelines are what have ultimately re resulted in um, the 2021 or 2018, as it was then, uh, uh, intermediary guidelines, right? I think that if the government is positing a legitimate aim, and they, they're well within their rights to do that, what you really need is two things. One is you need to narrowly circumscribe uh, those aims to say that this and only this is what I will go after, right? Um, you can't say that I'm going after sexually explicit material or um, child sex abuse material, and then sort of under the, sort of through a colorable exercise of power, start uh, being able to regulate X, Y, and Z here, right? So that's something that I think you need to make sure. Your, your regulation needs to be narrowly tailored. The second thing is you need to have structures of accountability there, right? So if you look at the way the traceability requirement is operationalized, right? They've obviously paid some lip service to the idea that, for example, traceability will only be, um, uh, traceability order will only be passed where all other measures of investigation have failed, right? But the question is, how do we know that? We have to take the executive's word for that, right? Under the 2021 intermediary guidelines. So I think having structures of accountability where you have some independent oversight, right? Whether it's parliamentary oversight, whether it's an independent body, whether it's some level of citizen oversight, right? But you need to have structures of accountability to say that, okay, I agree the executive has the ability or has the right to pursue this particular social agenda and they're within their rights to say that it's important to them, right? However, because of the balance of powers between the citizen and the state, and because of a sort of horizontal distribution of powers, we are going to say that you're going to have to be accountable at some level, right? And I think that's what you have. You need to build in those structures of accountability to make sure that the executive is then not culturally exercising their power and going after, say, political dissidents or minorities. So that's what you really need. Absolutely. But are there any other red flags that you would want to discuss with respect to these guidelines? <laughs> Uh, no. Thank you so much, Vas. This was an extremely informative and insightful session.